Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every week to defend and promote public education. And um, we are also not just pro-public schools, we are against the private school system receiving taxpayer funds. And we are for religious freedom. We are for the uh, separation of church and state. And uh, that is what our press release 916 is about. Religious administrators want to have their cake and eat it, and perhaps the time has come to call their hypocritical bluff. So we'll be talking about this uh, Religious Discrimination Acts and what it means uh, in the next few weeks, as we have in the past weeks, but we're also going to tell you today a bit more about private schools profiting millions from JobKeeper and the way the private education, early childhood education sector has been ripping off the taxpayers and also their employees. Uh, Maddie and Sorrell are going to tell us a bit about New South Wales, where the teachers are absolutely fed up with the New South Wales government and are going to go on strike uh, for very good reasons. And, uh, of course, Maddie will have a great state school for us. If we've got time, we might be able to talk about the American situation. But mainly today we're talking about Australia. Okay, then, let's get on with it. Press release 916, religious freedom. Religious administrators want to have their cake and eat it. Perhaps the time's come to call their hypocritical bluff. And to lead us off, we've got Oliver. Thank you, Jane. One of the most basic human rights is that of freedom of conscience. But as Baron de Montesquieu said, a nation may lose its liberties in a day, but not miss them for a century. In Australia, however, it has only taken 40 years since a high court, since a key high court case on religious liberty the dogged case of 1981 for religious liberties to be missed. Australian religious lobbyists and employers who are now heavily entangled with the state, heavily dependent upon government funding, are complaining bitterly about their lack of religious liberty and demanding ex- exemptions from anti-discrimination legislation in their employment practices. They were promised a religious freedom review as a consolation prize when same-sex marriage was legalised in late 2017. That review, led by former Liberal MP Philip Ruddock, 
found Australia does not have a religious freedom problem, but he did recommend new legislative protections against religious discrimination. In response, in December 2018, the Morrison government promised a Religious Discrimination Act. In particular, religious educational administrators who wish to have power, the SAC teachers whose personal lifestyle conflicts with their values, are concerned by state laws which make such discrimination illegal. They hope to set up a conflict of laws situation with stronger federal legislation and threatened a high court case under Section 109 of the Australian Constitution. But why is Section 116, the Religious Liberty Clause of the Australian Constitution, not mentioned in the conflict? The strange thing about the current situation in which the contending parties have resorted to expensive advertisements in the media is the complete silence on the Section 116, the Religious Liberty Clause in the Australian Constitution. This says, the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious text tests shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. One would have thought that the third clause of this Bill of Rights type clause, namely, the Commonwealth shall not make any law prohibiting the free exercise of any religion, would be of interest to those demanding religious liberty to discriminate against employees on the basis of religious belief and practice. But no, there has been no reference to this potentially very powerful clause of the Australian Constitution by conservative religious groups. Why? Is this because in 1981, when the millions, now billions, of taxpayer dollars to religious schools came under threat in the 1981 Dobbs case, church school representatives persuaded the Barwick High Court, Justice Murphy in dissent, that the words any religion in the first establishment clause of section 116 really meant a particular established church, for example, the Church of England. Given this very narrow interpretation of the first establishment clause, the third clause becomes at best meaningless. For example, if the words any religion are replaced by a particular established religion, the third clause reads, the Commonwealth shall not make any law for prohibiting the free exercise of a particular established church. Does this mean that the Commonwealth can make a law for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion so long as it is not a particular established church? What could have been a shield became a sword. Now over to Maddie, who's going to tell us what is a religious school. Yes, so we've been talking about the... Um the Section 116 and what happened in 1981. The High Court, the majority High Court, not Justice Murphy, read the clause down and out so that it was practically meaningless uh, with um, just uh, changing what uh, any religion means by saying that any religion is actually a particular church. You've turned the third clause on its head and they did this, uh, and they persuaded the High Court to uh, make this into narrow interpretation in order to keep their billions of dollars. But in the process, um, they lost the right to have freedom to exercise their religion in the third clause, if you actually sit and think about it. Uh, so nobody, including the High Court, wants to really discuss Section 116, unless, of course, you're the dogs who were never happy 
with the result in the first place. But um, back in 1979-81, the church school interest uh, wanted to keep the whole thing out of the court. They were very worried that they were going to lose their millions of dollars in those days, not billions. So they involved the dogs and other people in a 26-day trial of facts on the issue of what is a religious school. Most people would think that a religious school is one which has a great deal of religion in it, in which, in fact, the values, the religious values, permeate the school. And this is what, for 100 years, the uh, Roman Catholic Church in particular, but other schools as well, had said they were about. But Maddie is going to tell us a little bit more about this. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. Yes, religious lobbyists are currently making much of the fundamental religious nature of their schools. The Age <clears throat> on the 16th of November contained a half-page advertisement signed by leaders of the Anglican, Roman Catholic, Hindu, Coptic, Jewish, Krishna, Sikh, Russian Orthodox, Syro-Malabar, Islamic, Church of Christ, and Greek Orthodox churches. And they said, for people of faith, religious beliefs shapes all aspects of life. Parents that send their children to religious schools expect the school's environment faithfully represents the religious ethos in every respect, including the conduct of all teachers and staff. With this bill, the ability for schools to meet this legitimate expectation will be severely compromised because, in effect, the bill erroneously disconnects religious belief from conduct that is consistent with this belief. Uh, there you have a definition of a religious school at the current time. It permeates the school's environment. The faith represents the religious ethos in every respect. That's what they claim their schools are doing. But that's not what happened back in 1979-81 when their state aid, their millions of dollars, now billions of dollars, um, was under threat. Over to Sorrel. What happened in the trial of facts in the dog's case, Sorrel? Thanks, Jean. In 1979, church school representatives demanded a 26 trial of facts in the dog's case to prove that church schools were hardly more religious than state schools. This trial of facts in the dog's case commenced on 6 of March 1979 at 10.40am in the High Court building at 250 Little Burke Street, Melbourne. Justice Murphy was the presiding judge. The trial took 26 days in court before it got to the full high court hearing on the law. It involved 54 witnesses, 49 called by the plaintiffs and five called by the defendants. The, and defend the five called by the defendants, by the way, were all state school people. They weren't any, any uh, private school people. The uh, plaintiffs, that's the dogs, had to call the private school people. And we... We weren't allowed to cross-examine them. Yes, keep going. The defendants, in order to avoid cross-examination of the religious school witnesses, called the only representatives from state schools, as you were just saying. Uh, Father Martin, at the time, the Director of Catholic Education, attended court most days but did not appear in the witness box. 69% of the 49 witnesses called by the plaintiffs were representatives from the Roman Catholic system 
although Roman Catholic schools were in fact the recipients of over 80% of federal funds. Although there was one archbishop, three bishops, 12 principals, four parish priests, and 14 Roman Catholic church officials. There were 116 documents tendered by the plaintiffs as evidence that religious schools were what they had claimed to be for over 100 years, namely religious institutions. Given that the case was about the establishment clause of section 116 of the Australian constitution, the dog's plaintiffs thought the number of documents oddly appropriate. There were also 11 profiles, statements of facts and submissions on the fact and the law. The dogs incurred costs of at least $5,000 a day, and the opposition would have incurred costs of at least twice that amount. On the An interesting thing there that people might be interested in, at the end of the case, the dogs lost the case and the Commonwealth did not uh, call to have costs paid, but the private school interest said that they would reserve the right to always come for their costs of, you know, almost a million dollars. But uh, Ray Nielsen and others who were the plaintiffs for the dogs stood on the front of the High Court case, uh, sorry, of the High Court in Canberra and said before they paid a penny, they would go to jail. They called the private school bus and they'd never come for their costs and all the plaintiffs are now dead. But uh, that, that, that's what happened there. Wow. On the plaintiff side, the money came from state schools around Australia and the sacrificial giving of dedicated individuals. Although the National Council for Independent Schools and the Reverend Father Martin had been the official representatives of the church school interest, it was reported that the Catholic bishops had paid the legal bills for all church school interests. Justice Murphy, the trial judge, did not find on the facts. There were two sets of facts concerning the religiosity or otherwise of church schools. The plaintiff's statement was based on the official face of church schools. The church school defendants' facts were based upon their interpretation of the testimony of witnesses. At the end of the trial of facts, both submissions were handed up to the full court. The full high court heard the arguments on the law on the 24th of March, 1980, on the basis of the plaintiff's statement of facts. At the end of the hearing on the law, however, counsel for the church school interest indicated that if they lost on the law, they would return to have the legal arguments considered on their statement of facts. Chief Justice Barwick refused to do this as having another snail in the bottle. What were these facts presented by the church school interest? The ninth chapter on the trial appears in Contempt of Court. Original transcripts of the case will be made available online in the future and make very entertaining reading. The only witness who claimed his school, religious school's environment faithfully represented the religious ethos in every respect was Mr. Albert Miller, the principal of the Donvale Christian School. Counsel for the church school interest got him out of the witness box as quickly as possible. But the written submission of the National Council for Independent Schools and the Reverend Father Francis Martin presented to the court in July 1979, after the hearing of all the trial evidence, 
stated that Catholic schools were schools in the same sense as government schools. Their curricula being fundamentally identical, save that in the case of Catholic schools, there are more frequent classes in religious instruction. This religious instruction was presented as totally separate from the secular and as being about rather for religion. The old fashioned concept of permeation of the school curriculum with particular religious values was reduced to care and concern for students, a characteristic equally applicable to an atheist school. Lutheran, Adventist and Jewish schools were similarly presented as schools giving at least the same instruction as government schools. The 19th century concept of the Catholic or other denominational conscience indissolubly tied to a belief in church authority was undermined. The authority of the bishop was delegated down the line to administrators and principals. So in in a nutshell... When taxpayer funding was at stake back in 1979, religious schools with a few on and off religious appendages were insignificantly different from government schools. But that's not what they're saying at the moment, is it, when they want to have special exemptions from uh, the, the law, the Victorian discrimination law. If counsel for the church school interest was right, and is right, and church schools are not substantially different to public schools, why have them? Perhaps the churches are really about power, money, ability to pay the parents and not religion and conscience at all. One wonders when we hear a bit more about what they've been up to with taxes and taxpayers' money what their values really are. Since 1981, predictably, a third of Australian children have been separated out on the basis of the religious belief of their parents or their ability to pay fees into a myriad of sectarian systems of schools. There's there's a lot, lot more different kinds of schools now than there was even in 1981. The cost to the taxpayer has mushroomed from millions into ever-increasing billions of dollars and the levels of inequality have increased accordingly around the country. And public schools take all comers and they have the main burden when it comes to disadvantaged students. So the dogs believe that these religious administrators who pontificate on having all these special values for their schools, which would enable them to discriminate against teachers and others. They want to have their cake and eat it at the same time, just as they did back in 1979 and 1981. And perhaps the time has come to call their hypocritical bluff. So we'll leave you with that thought and we'll have a bit of a break. So it's up to us, the people, We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, 
because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Yes, well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Feds of Government Schools. And uh, you've been listening to our press release 916, which you'll be able to find in the next few days on www.adogs.info. But um, we've found how private schools go on and on and on and on about their values, values, values. I would have thought that being just truthful and honest were values that one would um, value. But um, we discover that the Victorian private schools, like other school, private schools and wealthy ones, enormously wealthy schools all around Australia, when they smell a good deal, they go for it. And JobKeeper was a good deal. But there are also other private organisers, uh, private companies that are smelling a good deal with, again, taxpayers' money with preschool education. And Dale's going to tell us about these wheels and dealings of the private sector. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, Trevor Cobalt's put together an article about Victorian private schools who profited millions from JobKeeper. So 40 Victorian private schools raked in $135 million in JobKeeper payments in 2020, while making profits of $96 million. 20 of the most privileged schools in the state got $94 million and made profits totalling $71 million. Just six of these raked in over $57 million and made nearly $30 million in profit, nearly all increased their profit over the previous year with the help of JobKeeper. Wesley College topped the list of JobKeeper payments with a massive $18.2 million. In the same year, it made a profit of $2.2 million and increased its profit with the help of JobKeeper by $3 million after making a loss in 2019 of $0.8 million. According to its annual report lodged with the Charities Commission, Wesley used JobKeeper to reduce its Term 2 fees by 20% for its wealthy clientele who pay nearly $30,000 per student and reduced consolidated charges in Terms 2 and 3 by 100%. 70% of Wesley students are from the highest socioeconomically advantaged or SEA quartile and 92% are from the two highest quartiles. It also transferred $5 million to its scholarship fund after receiving JobKeeper. Wesley's JobKeeper subsidy nearly doubled its taxpayer funding. It received another $19.5 million in government recurrent funding in 2020. This greed is on an obscene scale by, by a school whose assets are valued at nearly $190 million. 
Victoria's wealthiest school, Geelong Grammar, got 10.7 million in from JobKeeper. This covered a loss of 9.2 million in fee income incurred because its business model is based on boarding income, which suffered from COVID restrictions. Geelong Grammar called on the taxpayer to fund its loss instead of liquidating part of its $49.7 million investment portfolio or resorting to a bank loan secured by its assets of $229 million. Just under 70% of Geelong Grammar students come from the top SEA quartile and over 90% come from the two top quartiles. The school also received $8.8 million in recurrent government funding in 2020. Next on the list was Penley and Essendon Grammar, which got $9.2 million in JobKeeper payments while making a profit of $6.5 million. It increased its profit over the previous year by $4.4 million with the help of JobKeeper. Just under 70% of its students come from the top SEA and over 90% come, come from the top two quartiles. It received $20.2 million in recurrent government funding and has assets totalling $111 million. These are extraordinary figures. They should be made to pay these back and they should go into the disadvantaged state schools. It's quite shocking. It is. It is. Uh, Bialik College got $7 million from JobKeeper, uh, which allowed its loss of 20000 in 2019 uh, into a $6.7 million profit. Uh, near, nearly three quarters of, it, of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 94% are from the two top quartiles. In 2020, it also received $4.4 million in recurrent government funding and it has assets of $83 million. St Leonard's College it received $6.2 million in JobKeeper, which helped towards a massive profit of $11 million, an increase of $5.4 million over the previous year. And, of course, some 77% of its students come from the top SEA quartile and 95% are from the two top quartiles. It also received $7.7 million in recurrent government funding and has assets of $155 million. I suggest that these people, these people um, have a god, but um, I suspect it's mammon. <laughs> it's certainly, uh, yeah, that we know what the value uh, means when they talk about value. They're talking about money. The other top beneficiary from JobKeeper was uh, Ballarat Grammar, which received $5.9 and made a profit of $3 million in 2020, which was an increase of $1.9 million over 2019. It also received $16.7 million in recurrent government funding and holds assets of $111 million. Just under 60% of its students are from the highest SEA quartile and 86% are from the top two quartiles. Other highly privileged schools gained multi-million dollar payments, including Braemar College, Eltham College, Girton Grammar, Ivanhoe Girls School, Knox School, uh, Corowa, Lotha, Luther College and Tintern Grammar. All these schools except Knox, whose profit status is yet to be reported, made million dollar profits while receiving JobKeeper and increased their profits over the previous year. So we're talking about we're talking about schools making profits. Yes. Um, so they're businesses and if they've, they've been um, getting JobKeeper without needing it, then they should pay it back like other businesses have been asked to. Shocking. 
Yeah, well, many of Victoria's most privileged schools, such as Cary Grammar, Caulfield Grammar, Brighton Grammar, Furbank, Lauriston, MLC, PLC and Scotch College, have not yet had their 2020 financial statements published on the Charities Commission website. It's quite remarkable that they're still not published after nearly a year, and it's hoped that this is not a deliberate ploy to delay public scrutiny. Uh, only three of the 40 schools made a loss in 2020, while all the rest, except Knox, made a profit with the help of JobKeeper. None needed JobKeeper to stay afloat. They were not going to the wall. They had highly secure financial cushions to weather downturns in revenue, courtesy of their high fees and multi-million dollar assets. Many private schools that received JobKeeper have refused to disclose how much. For example, the Herald Sun's uh, Susie O'Brien recently reported that Strathcona and Mentone Girls Grammar noted in their financial reports that they'd received JobKeeper but would not provide her with the figures. Highly privileged schools such as Alvington Grammar, Christchurch Grammar, Methodist Ladies College and Trinity Grammar are known to have received JobKeeper but have not disclosed how much in their financial statements. The refusal to divulge their JobKeeper payments highlights the sense of entitlement and elitism of these privileged schools. It demonstrates an incredible arrogance to refuse to publicly account for their taxpayer funding. These privileged schools see themselves as having a superior moral values that are central to their elitist culture. If they had any common decency, they'd give the money back as some firms have done. As Senator Rhett Rex Patrick said, to take the money without being affected is to abuse the goodwill of the taxpayer and to deny taxpayers other much-needed services in areas such as healthcare, aged care and indeed education. The Morrison government has readily resorted to prosecuting ordinary people that may have got overpayments of a few thousand dollars from Centrelink. It's been unforgiving in pursuing them at length and rigorously. But if you're a wealthy private school, you get away with massive overpayments. It is a glaring double standard that favours the wealthy and hammers the poor. JobKeeper has, has proved to be yet another special deal for private schools not based on need. It came on top of over $300 million in recurrent government funding for the 40 schools in 2020. JobKeeper for wealthy private schools has compounded the vast inequality in school funding in Australia. Their ruthless pursuit of greed must be ended by a thoroughgoing reform of school funding to ensure it is solely based on need. Well, I, 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 um, I wish him uh, good luck in that because uh, all of the needs policies have very quickly turned to greed's policies. But the interesting thing about this article, Dale, is that no mention is actually made of the biggest um, the biggest organisation that would have profited from JobKeeper, which is the Roman Catholic sector. They would have got millions and billions, I would have thought. Uh, but there is no, no um, record of it at all. Yes, well, uh, that was a very interesting and not very edifying story, but we'll have a bit of a break and come back to find out about the union uh, which is a, accusing childhood education sector of ripping off the taxpayers too. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 
94198377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, here we are on the DOGS program again, uh, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we've been talking about the private schools who talk a lot about values uh, and want to have their cake and eat it when it comes to Discrimination Act, but um, the evidence uh, suggests that their values are highly questionable. And uh, the union is very unhappy with the childhood, the uh, preschool uh private sector, but uh, Dale will tell you more about this. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, uh, Jennifer Duke's written in The Age uh, on the 29th of November this year uh, about a union accusing the childhood education sector of ripping off the taxpayers and staff. The United Workers' Union is accusing childhood education giants of ripping off employees and taxpayers by taking huge executive bonuses, paying staff too little and using offshore havens to minimise tax bills. A report released ahead of a planned protest outside Parliament House on Monday says private businesses are taking huge profits and paying too little in tax while receiving significant support from the federal government. The findings are an escalation of tensions between workers and private companies in the early learning sector. Research undertaken by the union shows the sector turns over $14 billion a year and receives $11 billion in public funding, with 20% of the revenue collected by five major companies, of which three are based overseas. Several companies did not pay tax in 2020. The report accuses the sector of wage theft, aggressive tax avoidance and other misconduct. The union claims some providers engage in creative accounting practices, shuffling funds offshore to avoid paying tax in Australia. The union is launching an online petition requesting the federal government impose new rules on childhood education providers, including forcing them to publish their profit and tax figures and regulating how much profit can be taken out of the sector. The petition will push for more investment from the public purse into not-for-profit early education. The union in October released a separate report showing showing safety breaches at childcare centres leading to penalties that have happened disproportionately at for-profit providers. The union wanted more transparency, allowing parents visibility of these incidences. United Workers' Union Early Education Director Helen Gibbons said families expect their tax to be funding quality early education and fair wages for educators when instead it was translating into million-dollar executive salaries and transfers to tax havens. The early education sector desperately needs more transparency and financial regulation, as Gibbons said. Parents would be horrified to learn that this creeping commercialisation comes at the cost of quality care and education for their children and an underpaid and undervalued workforce of educators. For-profit services are more likely to be understaffed, to fail to meet quality standards and to commit safety breaches. The report said uh, for-profit providers pay staff less than the not-for-profit sector. 
not-for-profit providers typically spend 70 to 80% of revenue on wages, while in the commercial sector, this share can be down to 54%. And in a related article, uh, working mums are fearing the loss of flexibility in the big return to the office. Uh, generous executive salaries and dividends are doled out by the large for-profit providers while educators are paid the bare minimum, the report says. One of the biggest providers, G8 Education, was criticised by the union for paying out significant shareholder dividends and large executive salaries and bonuses while not paying staff enough. Chief Executive of G8, Gary Carroll, has come close to earning a million dollars in recent years. His 2018 package was 22 times the pay of workers commencing in the G8 centre on award wages and 14 times the award rate of a director of one of G8 centres, the report said. Mr Carroll said his organisation was committed to the early childhood education profession, families and their workforce. The provider's executive team and board took 20% pay reductions for half of 2020. Uh, we continue to offer above board award and industry competitive rates and recently increased wages for qualified early childhood teachers, those working towards their qualifications and trainee educators, he said. Uh, adding that there are, there are other benefits, including paid professional development funding, learning opportunities and bonus study payments. He said government funding was critical for the sector during 2021 as the pandemic affected the industry and all providers had access to the same support. The provider further disputed any characterisation of the accounting practices at the company as tax avoidance, noting the company pays tax at a usual corporate tax rate. The government has been con con contacted for comment. This, at least these people are pretending like religious people are to have values. They're in it to make a profit. But the problem is that there are, like people who make profits and put profits first, the people, the teachers and the children uh, come, a, come second to the main objective, unfortunately. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back and... Um, we have a look perhaps at what's happening in New South Wales. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. And uh, we're giving you quite a lot of facts and figures tonight, but uh, the most interesting facts and figures we can give you is the fact that there is a national crisis in numbers of children coming into the schools and a lack of teachers. Uh, teachers are going to become the most uh, prized employees uh, that the nation can have very shortly. 
On the 21st of November, the Australian Education Union discovered a leaked New South Wales government document which expects the state may run out of teachers in the next five years. The dire prediction is based on an existing teacher shortage, rising enrolments and an ageing workforce. And there's no relief in sight from the supply of new graduates. Enrolments in initial teacher education degrees have dropped by 30%. A New South Wales Teachers Federation study has also found that up to 18,600 extra full-time equivalent teachers will be needed in the New South Wales schools by 2036. But New South Wales isn't the only one that's uh, in trouble. The ACT has been trying to work on, on teacher shortages because they're biting in every state and territory in different ways. The under, underlying difficulty, of course, is attracting new people to the profession and retaining the existing valued teachers, which is consistent. In the ACT, an AEU survey of more than 1,800 members this year delivered such alarming results that the government immediately established a joint task force to develop a plan to deal with the shortages. So the uh, Commonwealth Government is very, very very unwise to be attacking teachers the way they are and trying to get control of teacher training. There's no relief in Tasmania. The concerns in the ACT are mirrored there, where the AEU branch president, David Benson, says a chronic teacher shortage and excessive workloads are affecting teachers and students. Their working conditions are the learning conditions of the students, he says, and of course that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, low pay and stressful working conditions are inhibiting the attraction of experienced teachers and new graduates to the state. The University of Tasmania teaching degree completion rates have fallen to around 33%, down from 55% 15 years ago. Over in Western Australia, there's a lot of frustration amongst teachers because there's a wage cap, and that has affected the shortage of relief teachers across the country which is worsening. Uh, when schools in leafy green metro areas can't get relief teachers, we know we're in dire straits. Um, so that's very interesting indeed. It's all around Australia. Queensland, which has certainly had a big pressure of growth of enrolments, school leaders report difficulties attracting and retaining teachers and enrolments are expected to grow quickly. And that puts further pressure on the schools. The Queensland Teachers Union President, Krista Richardson, says the state's population is forecast to increase by about 60,000 in the next few years. Well, it'll be interesting to see if any of the people who went from Victoria to Queensland when there were border closures and uh, there was um, a COVID situation in Queensland, which was far better than Melbourne, whether they come back, I suppose. South Australia country, in, um, South Australia is finding that country incentives are needed to send the teachers out into the country. For some, it might be a day's drive to Adelaide to attend a course, and that means three days off work if um, they uh, have to do that. But if no relief teachers are available, then there won't be any professional uh, development for teachers. As in other states, the teacher shortages in South Australia are worse in the rural and the remote areas. Now, what's happening in Victoria? It's putting money on the table to encourage teachers to country and hard to staff areas. 
It offered 50 incentive packages of up to 50,000 in 2019-20 to teachers prepared to relocate to the country and to some difficult to staff metropolitan schools as well. The amount offered in each case varies according to the school and the money will be paid over several years. A further 150 and 250 positions have been offered in the second and third years. So teachers can use these incentive packages to cover relocation, housing and cost of living expenses. But if they have those extra expenses, then what's the use of having them, I wonder? The AEU Victoria President, Meredith Peace, says the idea is to get teachers to those schools and also to stay there for a longer term. Teacher shortages in Victoria are mostly felt, however, in the specialist subjects, maths and technology, in the secondary schools and particularly in the country areas. And the relief teachers are also in short supply in Victoria and that affects uh, teachers who want to do professional development and take time out. Uh, and the, some relief teachers report being treated very poorly by the schools and others weren't keen to work on site during the lockdowns. So some schools refused to pay their relief teachers, even though teachers were entitled to the payment. And it was extremely disappointing as it left them without any source of income. Well, of course, uh, state schools didn't get JobKeeper, did they? JobKeeper was only given to private organisations and didn't they have a ball? Uh, Peace says that a type of internship program of extended practicum is being trialled in Victoria secondary schools to get teaching students into the classrooms under supervision and being paid. Well, of course, that's the old pupil teacher system. That's as old as, uh, as old, as old, as old will be uh, back to the other system that is even worse, uh, probably much the monitorial system, where uh, you have uh, teachers just supervising students to teach other, uh, other um, students. So um, this is all very interesting. Our teachers are not to a penny. Teachers are a very scarce resource in Australia at the moment. And if the governments are going to get them into our schools, they're just going to have to pay them. But they don't want to pay them, do they, Jeff? Jeff no, they don't. Tell us no. what the people up in New South Wales are going to do about the situation. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, that, thanks, Jean. Yeah, no, the teachers uh, want to strike up in New South Wales, and this is from a media release from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Uh, it's called Teachers to Strike Over Workload, Salaries and Shortages, um, released on the 27th of November. Public school teachers and principals will strike on Tuesday, December 7, over the government's failure to address unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries, which are contributing to growth shortages of teachers. Federation Council voted unanimously for the 24-hour stoppage at a meeting in Sydney today, which is obviously the 27th. The decision states, Council determines following a statewide delegate's meetings at which the government's insistence on the maintenance of contemptuous 2.5% wages cap and refusal to budge on crippling workloads was roundly condemned and rejected. And there was no other option but to escalate our campaign to achieve the pay and conditions teachers and principals deserve and the profession and students need. Members for the Greater Sydney, Newcastle and Central Coast, Wollongong, the Southern Highlands and Blue Mountains will rally outside Parliament House in Macquarie Street, Sydney. All other members will rally at designated regional centres across the state. 
Federation President Angelo Gavrilopoulos said the union had exhausted all options over an 18-month period to persuade the government to redress the decline in salaries and working conditions that are contributing to teacher shortages and reducing the attractiveness of the profession. Those efforts include the commissioning of the independent Gallup inquiry, repeated lobbying, lobbying of state MPs and unprecedented uh, campaign for paid advertising. Mr. Gabrielatos said the resolution of the dispute was now in the hands of the Premier, Dominic Perrottet. The Perrottet government is refusing to listen to the warnings of its own education department that unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries of teachers are contributing to growing shortages and turning people off teaching, he said. This is about the future of the teaching profession and the quality of education children receive. No student should miss out because of a lack of teachers, but this is what is going to increasingly happen across New South Wales if the government fails to act. The government's position has been fixed from day one. They won't budge from a one-size-fits-all 2.5% wages cap, despite their own education department's warning that teacher shortages exist because other careers pay more competitive salaries. Every year, teachers have been asked to do more, and every year their salary has fallen compared to other professions. The Paratech government won't increase the preparation time of all the teachers, despite their own survey showing only one-third of teachers have the time to do their job well. The time teachers have for planning and preparation outside the classroom hasn't increased since the 1980s for primary teachers and the 1950s for secondary teachers. The number of vacant permanent positions in schools has increased by 80% since June, and the Education Minister was warned in July that New South Wales is facing a large and growing shortage of teachers. Members who require additional information about the strike and rally locations should contact their school federation representative or local organiser. Obviously, that's in New South Wales, not in Victoria, um, although I'm sure that our teachers are equally stressed to hear. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. So um, the New South Wales Teachers, well, the, the Teachers Federation has always been perhaps um, in, in the leading edge of teachers around Australia. And uh, Gabrielle Artis has been around for some time and is a pretty cluey operator. So I think we can only just wish them good luck and, of course, be very concerned about the future for our teachers here in Victoria as well because they do such a good job. But um, I think that we'll have a bit of a break now and come back to the great state school. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Every week on The Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. 
And the great state school of the week this week is Druin Secondary College. The dogs like to say a big sing out to you out down there in Druin. It's a wonderful town. And we'd love to tell you about the Druin Secondary College. It's got a proud history of over 68 years as a community-based college, offering a high-quality education to all students. We emphasise the power of a strong partnership between our students, staff, parents, and the local community. That's what they say. The college culture is based on our vision and our core values. Our vision states, Druin Secondary College is committed to ensuring every student develops the knowledge, skills, and behaviours needed to positively contribute as a responsible and caring citizen of a changing global community. Our four core values of achievement, respect, commitment, and community are integral to our day-to-day -day life at the college. At Druin Secondary College, we know all children can learn and succeed. We have a positive learning culture, which is focused on student achievement alongside the building of positive relationships. We work proactively to ensure the young people in our care develop the personal confidence and resilience they need to grow into young adults. Our college is proud of our ability to cater for individuals' needs, abilities, and interests. The curriculum is structured vertically to provide flexible individual pathways, allowing students to move between year levels to access units that cater to their strengths and weaknesses. Parents who show academic ability can apply to be part of the APP, Accelerated Pathways Program. Students can access subjects at more than one level where ability, interest, recommendation and availability allow. Students in year eight who prefer hands-on learning and require extra support with literacy and numeracy can study in the hands-on learning program. This program consists of a set of group, a set group of subjects, subjects, including literacy, numeracy and themes. Students at year nine who are interested in pursuing an apprenticeship can study in the pre-apprenticeship program, which is open to boys and girls. Uh, and now from the Acura My School website, uh, we find that the enrolment is 1,161 with 608 boys and 553 girls. That's a good uh, outcome for the girls there. There's a lot of more boys to choose from. The ICSA value below average at 980. So this is not a wealthy zone and they punch well above their weight. The upper 25% uh, parental income is only 6%. The second level parental income is only 16%. The third, uh, below 50%, is uh, 37%. The lowest quartile of 25% is 41. So there's a large section of people in the lower two quartiles. So really they do very well. So really a school with many disadvantaged students with 3% speaking a language other than English and 2% of Indigenous students. So a big hello to all the Bunurong and the, and the uh, Gunnar Kunai down there, the people in the local area. Um, finances, uh, recurrent grants, they get a government grant of 3.2 million. Victorian government of 12.2 million, fees and parental contributions of 1,139,415, and other private contributions of 483,644. That's a per, per pupil spend of 16,246, a capital uh, expenditure of over 6.2 million over three years. But the results 202 out of, out of 210 received a senior secondary certificate. And NAPLAN, everything's above average. Well done to the Druin uh, Secondary College. You are fabulous. Well, well done, Druin, up there on the highway into the La Trobe Valley. It's a beautiful place. Uh, anybody who's uh, gone into the Gippsland via Warrigal and Druin knows how lovely it is there. 
So those those children and those those uh, teachers up there uh, are learning in a wonderful environment, but um, they certainly need all the help they can get too. But um, our time is gone. And if you want to find out more about the dogs or what we've been talking about today, particularly uh, with the Religious Discrimination Bill and the Section 116, then we suggest you go to our website at www.adogs.info. And you may wish to listen to some of our, our previous um, uh, programs on our podcast at 3CR. But from Dale and Jeff and Maddie and Sol and Oliver, you've all helped us put this to air today. From us all, we say thank you and bye for now. Bye. Says he.